you open your Bibles, uh, Philippians chapter 4. First, I thought we were going to finish Philippians today, but uh, I think we're going to finish it next week and do a recap next week as well. So uh, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 20 this morning. All right, so the last time we were together, we we looked at one of the most common, uh, most quoted verses in all the Bible, Philippians 4.13. You could probably recite it with me right now, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And just as it's one of the most quoted verses in the entire Bible, I also believe it's one of the most misquoted scriptures in all of uh, all of the Word as well. If you remember, we had mentioned last week how uh, in Jesus' temptation, uh, Satan actually misquoted scripture to Jesus. And just to give you a little bit of context, I just want to think about this for a minute uh, before we get into the text. Remember when Satan, uh, he, he tells Jesus to uh, throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple if he really is the Son of God. And before that, now that was his second temptation, before that he told Jesus to make uh, a stone into bread. And remember how Jesus responded? Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So immediately Jesus combated Satan's lie with truth, with the word of God. But the second time when Satan actually tells him to cast himself down from the pinnacle of the temple, if he's the son of God, he knew that Jesus would quote scripture. So what does Satan do? He quotes scripture. And that's a very interesting dynamic right there. You have the arch enemy of God quoting scripture to the son of God, to God in the flesh. Now, what, what is that about? But this is what Satan actually told Jesus. He said, for it is written. Interesting. We always attribute that, of course, to Jesus. It is written. But Satan said it as well. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. That's from Psalm 91. Now what does Jesus do when Satan quotes that scripture to him wrongly? Well, Jesus takes him to school. And he tells him what scripture really says. He, he says, uh, he puts it into the right perspective. He says again, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And so I wonder sometimes the way that I've heard believers quote, and the way that I've quoted uh, Philippians 4.13 at times, I wonder if we're not doing the very same thing, if we're not tempting God. You know, oh, I want to go jump out of an airplane. So I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Am I testing God by doing things that I maybe shouldn't? Now, if I'm in the military and I'm called to jump out of an airplane, I'm going to be holding on to this word right now. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've never had to do that. Some of you, some of you here have, I think. Right? That takes, that takes some courage to do things like that. So the question is, am I applying God's word rightly to my life? Satan knows God's word and he misapplies it. Right? He twists it. He takes the truth and he perverts it. And therefore, it's so important for us to understand and know the scriptures. We need to know what comes before the verse and what comes after the verse. Uh, and not just even within that paragraph. I want to know what the entire book says, right? We've been reading Philippians together. It builds at times, doesn't it? We understand what it's written in chapter 4 based on what we've already read in chapters 3, 2, and 1. 
I also want to know maybe what Paul says about a given topic or a certain word. You realize when you do word studies in the Bible, you can break words down to how, let's say, the Apostle Paul uses a word versus how John uses a word versus how Jesus might use a word. And it gives you more clarity maybe of the meaning of that text. But by and large, I want to see how a verse of the Bible goes within the whole context of Scripture. How does this verse fit into the rest of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation? Because I can take one verse out of context and make it mean almost anything I want it to mean. And isn't that dangerous? Isn't that how a lot of cults get started? They take a verse, they misapply it, and they use that verse as their base text to teach false doctrine. It's what the enemy does. He, uh, he disguises himself as an angel of light. So he doesn't just come at us in the dark Halloween clothing telling us, hey, I'm, I'm the enemy right now. You know, you better be on guard. No, he uses scripture, but he twists it. So you ha we have to know our Bibles. And, and that's also why, as believers, when you spend time with the Lord, I, I pray that you spend time with him every single day, right? Remember Jesus said, man should not live on, every, on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I pray that you're in your word every single day. And in fact, I would say every single morning. Because I believe the Lord will feed you for that day. He'll give you the allotted food. He'll give you what you need for that day. And then you need to spend time with him the next day for the food for that day. Just like he gave the manna from heaven every day. They had to go out and get it except on the Sabbath. And so we need to spend time with the Lord. But the question is, how am I spending time with the Lord? Am I, uh, how do I approach the Bible? I cannot begin to tell you how many Christians... When I ask the question, how often do you read your Bible? Oh, every day I read it. And immediately I'm thinking, yes, this is awesome, right? And then I, I'll dig a little bit deeper. Well, how do you approach the Bible every day? How do you approach it? And many times, here's what the answer is. Well, I get my Bible and I just flip it open to whatever comes to me. And I read it for the day, right? And I think, well... Would you read other books like that? I mean, have you ever read, say, Moby Dick and opened it up to page 432 and just started reading? You're probably going to be confused, right? You're probably not going to know the full understanding of what's, being, what's going on, of what's happening. Why? Because you, you've missed the context of it. And yet, so many believers, they just, every day, they, uh, let me just see where, you know, Scripture takes me, right? And so I, I, I open it up and I read it. And it says, So all the service of the Lord was prepared the same day to keep the Passover and the burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord. Whoa! I better keep Passover. Or, or maybe you've done this. You know, and I'm guilty of this. You open it up and all of a sudden it's, it's a word of judgment. In fact, the first service I opened it up and it was a word of judgment, right? So you get that word of judgment and you're like, boy, I think this is for my boss. You know, <laughs> let me turn to something else, you know, because that one, that just wasn't the Lord's word for today. And then five times, you know, it takes you, oh, this is a nice promise right here. This will be my word for the day. Now, I, I, I do want to say there's been a couple times in my life where I was desperate and I opened up the Bible and God spoke to me. So I'm not saying that it can't be done. What I'm saying is, as a habitual approach to Scripture, pick a book of the Bible, get alone with the Lord, read through it at your own pace. You don't have to set the world on fire, right? If you're not a big reader, don't feel like you've got to read five chapters every morning. 
But get alone with the Lord. Go systematically through his word from Genesis to Revelation. And you will find God will give you discernment as you read that word. And you'll begin to put all the pieces together and you'll see how the Bible all comes together as one central message, right? Jesus Christ, Him, crucified, resurrected, glorified, and coming again. And by the way, Creator as well. And you see all of Scripture as a whole and not just these little individual parts that if you just take the part again, you can make it say whatever you want. And here's the last thing I'll just say, and then I'll be quiet about this. You realize I don't have a monopoly on the scriptures over your life, right? I mean, we gather together as believers. We study the Bible together because it's beneficial. We need to. But if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God in you. And his Spirit will teach you. He will lead you. He will give you understanding of the Word. He will help you. If you struggle reading, there are actually audio Bibles. Some of us aren't big readers. There are audio Bibles you can purchase. In fact, the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So maybe you're not a big reader. Get it on MP3 or CDs. You can listen to the Bible. And I, trust, I promise God will speak to you through his word and he'll also give you that lens of discernment so that when you hear a verse taken out of context, all of a sudden there will be that, that alarm that goes off. Wait a minute. Something ain't right here. This is, this is just not correct. Or you hear a teaching somewhere. Even as you listen to me, I want you to be testing everything that I say, right? Unless I'm reading to you the scriptures, the literal scriptures, you should be testing every word I say and saying, how does this line up with the rest of the scripture? And so we, we, let, let's go ahead and begin in verse 10. I just want us to read where we, uh, what we did last week because it all goes together of what we're going to be studying today. Verse 10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless... You have done well that you shared in my distress. Notice that word, nevertheless. Just as Paul has got done telling us about self-sufficiency in Christ, that he has learned whether to have nothing or to have an abundance of things, and he's learned the secret of, of contentment in Christ, he wants the believers in Philippi to understand that their, their gift to him, their financial offering, was not in vain. It was not as if he didn't appreciate it, and it was not as if it didn't have an effect. Because he's walking a tightrope here, as we looked at last week. How do I show gratitude without making them feel obligated? How do I show them that I'm content in Christ, I don't care for the gift as much as the giver? You know, and he balances all these things. In fact, we're going to spend the rest of today looking at the gift. And his perspective of the gift. But more importantly than his perspective of the gift, we're going to see God's perspective of the gift. Because isn't it true? We want to be about the Lord. Even whatever gifts that we give, we want to do it in Jesus' name. We want to do it unto him and not unto man. Because if you do it unto man, 
things will get old pretty quickly because man will not always respond to the gift the way that we think they should. You know, you, you, it's Christmas time. You spend so much time and energy looking for the perfect gift for someone. They open it and it's just like, ah, next thing. Right? It can be frustrating at times if I have the wrong perspective or the wrong motive. I want to be concerned about what does God think? What, what, what does, what's his uh, understanding of a situation? So verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. They did well. And notice he says they shared in his distress. How? Well, through their giving. They gave to meet his financial need. And it wasn't just a want, right? It was a need. He was in need. He was hungry, probably. He needed food. He needed basic necessities. And therefore, through their gift, they participated in Paul's trial. Now, they didn't just participate in that way, though. Who did they send with the gift? Quiz here. Epaphroditus. And remember how Epaphroditus, when he went on this trek to Rome to give Paul the financial gift, what happened to him? He, he almost died. It doesn't say how. We know that he almost died and the Lord healed him. The Lord had mercy upon him. But this gift that, that Epaphroditus brought to Paul, it, it was as if he was partnering with Paul in chains. He almost gave his life up for the sake of, of the gospel, for the sake of furthering the gospel through Paul and that financial donation. And so as, as they sacrificially gave and as we sacrificially give to others, we enter into their world. You know, when I, when, let me give you an example. If, let's say that you're spending time with the Lord in the morning and you're praying and you're, you know, someone just comes into your mind you weren't thinking about the person beforehand, but you're praying and he drops someone, someone's face into your mind or someone's name. And you realize that this person is in need. Maybe it's financial need. And maybe at the time you really don't have the finances that you think you should in order to give this financial gift to someone. But the Spirit of God's just provoking your heart. This person needs it. This person needs it. As you go and you sacrificially give to this person in need, you're entering into their trial. Do you know that? You're letting them know, not just that you know what's going on, you're letting them know that Christ knows what's going on in their life. Because isn't it true if you're ever in need and someone comes to your aid, you realize, wow, God sees. He knows. He knows what I need. He knows what I'm going through. And by the body of Christ, maybe he uses people to enter into your world so that you better understand God and his love and his care for you as his child. Isn't that amazing when that happens? Aren't there those moments in your Christian life where you just step back and you say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for moving on people's hearts, whether it be financial, whether it be using talents. Maybe you volunteer at an after-school program and you're the only adult who actually gives children one-on-one -on -one attention. Maybe they don't get it at home. Their teacher's trying, but they have 30 kids to try to manage. And so you become an instrument to enter into this child's world to share with them the love of Jesus Christ. It could be our time, it could be our talent, it could be finances, whatever it is that God gives us. This is ministry, entering into people's worlds. Isn't that what Jesus did? Didn't we see this in Philippians 2, 5 through 11? That key text that this whole book revolves around of God emptying himself, becoming man, a bondservant, entering into our world and serving us. Isn't that ministry? 
And so as this church gave to Paul sacrificially, they entered into his world. They, they literally, as he uh, states here in verse 14, they shared in his distress. And now, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Now, after Paul had planted the church in Philippi and he left this church, uh, he ended up going to Thessalonica to plant churches there. And after that, he went to Berea. Remember what the church in Berea did when Paul entered? He's teaching them the gospel, and what did they do? Did they just take it by faith? Hell, you're an apostle of the Lord. You had this vision of Christ. Everything you say must be true, Paul. Is that what they did? No, they tested everything by the word of God. That's why we call them Bereans. That's why we want to be like the Bereans, right? We want to test everything by the word of God. So he went to Thessalonica, he went to Berea, and then he leaves Macedonia. And he goes down to, to Athens, and that's where he, he sees all the different idols. And it provokes his heart as he sees the idolatry in Athens. And he ends up preaching the gospel to the Athenians. And finally, he makes his trek down to Corinth, which was a very uh, ungodly city. You could think of Las Vegas. Corinth was sort of like the Las Vegas of Paul's day. And, and what he ended up doing after he left Philippi, he did not receive funds from people uh, after Philippi. So he went to Thessalonica and he worked. He went to Berea. He went to uh, Athens and Corinth and he worked. He provided for himself as much as he possibly could. But in the midst of that, this church in Philippi, time and time again, he tells us, gave financially to him. And mind you, this gift, just as Epaphroditus gift to him while at Rome, this was not just Western Union, we'll send you some money. Right? That, I mean, that would be a blessing if Western Union was around back then. There's nothing wrong with sending money to a missionary through Western Union. But they didn't have that luxury. And so as they're giving to him, let's just say, for example, uh, as they're giving to him from Philippi to Thessalonica, that's 95 miles one way. That's from here to Frederick, Maryland, or almost from here to Pittsburgh. And you're giving this financial gift to Paul 95 miles away. And by the way, in the midst of that, you know, traveling back then was dangerous. That's why they often traveled in groups because to travel alone, there were thieves along these common trade or these common paths that people would go. And so this church, time and time again, not only did they give financially to Paul, but they sacrificed for him. Someone was willing, at least one person, maybe probably more, were willing to trek 95 miles one way, 95 miles back, weather and everything else entailed, just to supply for his needs. Isn't that amazing? Can you put yourself in Paul's shoes for a situation, for a, uh, for a minute, and think about what that must have meant for Paul? What did that mean for Paul's faith? See, Paul, don't forget, Paul is a man just like we are, right? I know I say his name a lot because he's the author, but really, who's the author of this book? The Holy Spirit. He used Paul. But Paul was a man just like us, a human, just like us. In fact, when you read Acts, you'll see he has moments of fear, doesn't he? He has moments where he feels all alone and abandoned. And it's so amazing to read Acts and see how faithful God is to speak to Paul right where he's at. 
And I believe that God used this church to minister to Paul to encourage him. Not only is he the apostle and he's pouring out to everyone, but that God sees him as an individual and that God sees him and loves him. See, we all need the Lord to pour into us, don't we? And I, I, I'm looking around at this room right now, and I see a lot of servants right in front of me. I see people who serve and serve and serve and serve. And there are seasons where life gets difficult and service gets difficult. Paul is a great example of that. And I pray that we as a body, when we see our fellow soldiers, when we see one another, maybe going through a difficult season, would we, would we be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to acknowledge that this, my brother or sister has a need? May we be gracious enough and have faith enough to trust the Lord to step out in faith because maybe I'll be the instrument to point people to God who supplies our every need. Because as they gave this gift to Paul, who do you think he really understood was the giver of all good gifts? It was the Lord. And so their gift showed Paul God's faithfulness. How do you think he came to that conclusion that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? See, he didn't say I can do all things through the church of Philippi who, who, who strengthens me and supplies for my every need, right? It wasn't about the church in Philippi. No, he had found contentment in Christ. And no matter what season he was in, he saw Jesus came through. Haven't you found that to be true in your life as a believer? No matter what situation you go through, Jesus Christ is faithful to supply for you. This is where we're heading in this text, right? I'm getting ahead of myself, but I get so excited thinking about this, that he will provide for you. He will be there with you. He will go through difficult things with you, right? And so he's thankful for these people. They travel. They gave to him time and time and time again. Even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Notice he also doesn't say there for his desires as an apostle, right? Or as the a-apostle. He could have commanded a lot of things. In fact, he could have demanded things as an apostle, but he didn't. I like that about Paul. He could have went into different towns or he could have went where these churches were planted. And he could have said, you know what, who has the most soft bed in town? Who makes the best breakfast? Right? Who makes the pancakes? I'm going to Charlie's house, right? See, he could have done whatever he wanted as an apostle and used his apostleship to get things from the people. But here, he's, we're going to see, he's more thankful for the people. Because notice where he goes with this. In verse 17, not that I seek the gift, oh, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. And Paul reveals his great concern for the Philippians over and above himself. He's more thankful for their future reward and the treasure that they're storing up in heaven than he is even for the gift that nourished and benefited him. This is the love of Christ. He's, he's thankful for the people. He understands when they gave of this gift. Listen, it's just a gift that will be here today and gone tomorrow. But what these believers are doing is they're, they're storing up treasures in heaven. There's an account that God is keeping. And he's an accountant that sees everything. Thank God, right? And he sees everything. He's, he sees their sacrificial giving. And Paul understands that God takes note of this. He takes note of it. He sees it. 
And he understands that this is treasure that no man can take away from these believers. And he's so thankful because he understands that these believers are storing up treasure that no man can take away. That's eternal in the heavens, kept by God and his power for them. And so through their financial, their physical giving to Paul, they have accrued interest in their heavenly account. Verse 18, indeed, I have all and I abound. I am full. Now, when he says this, I have all, it literally means I have received all. The NIV translates it as I am amply supplied. You could say that he said, I have received full payment, paid in full, church in Philippi. He wants them to understand again, I'm thankful for the past. You've given to me time and time again. I'm thankful for the present gift. But he's not trying to swindle them for the future. Oh, if you just continue to give your sow your seeds in the future, you will be eternally blessed or you will receive twofold. You give me $10, you'll get 20 in return. He's not concerned about the future. Rather, he's letting them know, I'm thankful for you, for who you are. And you know what? I don't want you to feel obligated for anything in the future. Paid in full. I am full because of the grace of God that you've shown me. And so indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I love this language that Paul employs here. He likens their financial gift to the Old Testament sacrificial offering. And the picture was you would have the priest offer up the burnt offering and that burnt offering would start to smell. And it would, it would have this aroma that would so-called rise up to the nostrils of God. It's sort of like in the spring, and you guys will appreciate this. In the spring, you know how you step outside and you realize someone is grilling in your neighborhood? And the smell of grilled meat, right? Is there anything better than that, guys, right? A good steak on the grill or a hamburger. And the aroma that that cooked meat Uh, presents. And so the picture is that the burnt offering that was offered to the Lord in the Old Testament, as long as it was offered in a manner that was prescribed by the Lord, it was pleasing to him. The smoke would come up to him before him. And he likens it to what these believers have done. The author of Hebrews picture uh, shows us this in the New Testament in chapter 13 verses 15 and 16. He said, by Christ, Let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Now, Paul's already told us to do that. Remember, he said, rejoice in the Lord always, right? Again, I say rejoice. So he's already encouraged us to offer the sacrifice of praise to him. But he goes a step further, the author of Hebrews. He says, but do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Don't you want to please your father? You see, I want to please the Lord. I want to please my heavenly father. It's sort of like my boys. Every, every day when I come home, they've usually drawn or painted or done something new. And uh, even as most of those drawings now are turning to gross things, uh, and they think that that's pretty cool, uh, even whatever it is, you know, daddy loves it. And the heart of my boys is just to please daddy. You know, they want to show me what they've done. Maybe they've been working all day, you know, to draw this boogeyman or whatever it is, you know, for daddy. 
And the joy that it brings me to see my children sacrificially, maybe using of their time, instead of doing something just for themselves, which is, you know, the default for most kids. When they draw something for daddy, it means something to me. Because they've put time into this. They've put thought into it. They've put their talents into it. It was a sacrifice on their part. And I, want to, I want you to think about this. As you, as you survey the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you think of Jesus Christ, did you ever get the sense that anything belonged to Jesus in the Gospels? Did he ever hold on to anything that was his? Outside of his relationship with the Father, which he would go and he would, you know, take time to be alone with his Father in the morning, get alone and pray. Outside of that, did he, with, did he ever try to hold on to anything of this world? I read those Gospels time and time again, and it's surprisingly silent on anything, really, of material value towards Jesus. There were times when he would tell them to cast a line into the sea and up pops a fish and a coin that they needed to pay the tax. Or he would maybe take those loaves, he would break them and bless them and distribute it out to the masses. But I never see Jesus taking tangible things and hoarding them or using them for himself. I see him constantly giving and serving others. Even when John the Baptist is beheaded, which, mind you, number one, they're cousins. Number two, John is the last prophet, so to speak, in the line of prophets. And he's been killed. And I can't imagine Jesus, the impact that that had on his heart, the last prophet before him, killed. And he goes to be by himself, and what happens? The multitudes follow him. And instead of acting like I probably would act, I'd probably say, can't you see I'm trying to get alone, right? I need some alone time. I need me time right now. I'm grieving. Can't you think about anyone else but yourself? See, that would be my response at that point because I'd be at my wit's end probably. And then I would just let everyone know. He doesn't do that. He serves. He gives of himself. Now here's what's very significant about the language that Paul uses in verse 18. When he says here, this gift that Epaphroditus brought, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. This is identical language Paul uses to describe Christ's sacrifice in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. He said this, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. What amazes me is that the same language he uses to describe the sacrifice of all sacrifices, Jesus Christ on the cross for us, he uses it now to speak of this offering that the Philippians give Paul. How incredible must this offering be to the Father? How much are they becoming like Jesus? Because you realize the fragrance of Jesus is the only fragrance that pleases the Father, ultimately. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. And so he is the final sacrifice in that sense. He is the sacrifice that pleases the Father. 
And so by this sacrifice, these believers are showing fruitfulness that they are becoming more like Christ. In fact, it is actually Christ in them and through them employing this gift and therefore being edifying to the Father. That's incredible. That's incredible. You know, they're adding to their account, their heavenly account. Here's what amazes me most about the Lord. Do you realize that everything we do that's of eternal significance, he did in and through us? It was him doing it. And when we sacrifice the things that he's given us, he wants to reward us eternally for. That blows my mind that we serve a father who gives everything to us. And when we just use what he's given us faithfully, he wants to bless us. He wants to reward us eternally. And as this gift is coming up before him, he sees it. He's aware of it. It's sweet incense to him. It's a sweet-smelling aroma, just as the son's offering on the cross was a sweet-smelling aroma to the father. Do you ever think of his offering that way? What love he had for us. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross and he's offering up his body, to be broken for us. It says it pleased the Father to crush him in Isaiah, right? It pleased the Father to crush the Son. And that crushing, that offering, came up before the Father. And it was perfectly pleasing. Because he says what? It is finished. The sacrifice has been completed. It's been perfectly accepted by the Father. The fact that he, rec that he resurrects from the dead and ascends to the Father, isn't that proof? That's the greatest evidence that the Father was pleased with the Son's sacrifice. And so through this gift, this church is becoming more like Jesus Christ. They're following his pattern that he established. And that's why in the book of Romans, you know, the first 11 chapters of Romans is doctrine. It's telling us the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace of God shown to us in Christ and all of its layers. But in chapter 12, it turns to application. In other words, it's a response to the grace of God. And that's when he says, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, to, to do what? To offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And so it's a, it's a response. Here's, here's my point that I'm trying to make here. As the Philippians give this gift to Paul, it's a response of theirs to the grace of God in Christ. They're responding to what Christ has already done in and through them. Think about it. We love him because he first loved us. We forgive others. Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven us. We're imitators as dear, as dear children to Christ. And in order to be an imitator of someone, there has to be a standard, right? There has to be someone who goes before us. And so Christ is the one who they're following. They're responding to the grace of God in their life. Now, here's the difference between this and religion. Religion says, you do this, and maybe God will accept you. If you're good enough. Whatever that good enough means. If you pray hard enough, God will accept you. If you give more, God will accept you. If you say, I don't know, 10 Hail Marys, then God will accept you. If you do this or you do that, somehow this will make you acceptable in the eyes of God. Sell all your possessions and give it to the poor, and then you'll be accepted in God's eyes. 
Religion always says, you do this and then God will accept you. Christianity says, God has done this. Now respond out of a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude. Do you see the difference? See, a religious spirit, someone who's caught in religion is, number one, there's no peace because you never know if your good is ever enough. How do you know if your good outweighs your bad? I don't know. How do you know if it'll ever be enough? False religions, there's never that assurance that you're right with God. You realize that? You don't know. You don't know if you're going to heaven until you get there and you sure hope, right? You sure hope you get there. But Christianity is built and based on Christ and Christ alone. And based on what he's done for us, Lord, you gave everything. I can never repay you for this, Lord. But here's what I have. Use it for your glory, Lord. Use me for your glory, Lord. Everything, Lord, is yours. I give it back to you. May you be honored and glorified. See, that's the heart of this church in Philippi. That's the heart that God wants all of us to have. And it's a response to his grace. It's, it brings freedom. Because if, if someone's religious, they're always, do you ever notice this? They're always comparing themselves to other people to try to make themselves feel better. That's what the Pharisees would do. They'd look at the sinners. Oh, I thank, thank you, God, I'm not like him, right? I fast, I give, I do this, I do that. In fact, in that example, Jesus says the Pharisee was actually praying to himself. That was not a sweet-smelling aroma to the Father, <laughs> that Pharisee's prayer. But when the sinner comes, beats his chest and just says, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. Because this man understood his need for the Savior. See, it's through our faith in Christ that pleases the Father. Because we're putting all our eggs in one basket. The basket that God has put before us. The basket that he says, this is sufficient for you. My son is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is sufficient for you. Everything you need is found in him and him alone. To reject that is a life of bondage, trust me, internal and external. And so, as Paul is elaborating on all of this, the sweet-smelling aroma, notice verse 19. This is a familiar one to many of us. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Just as they had filled Paul's need, so now God will fill their every need. In other words, you can't outgive God. They gave sacrificially to Paul, but now who's going to give to them? God's going to give to them, right? My God shall supply all your need. It's, you gave to me, church, but I want you to realize God's going to supply for your needs. It could be material, right? The Lord understands we have material needs. It's promising here, I will provide for your needs materially or spiritually. They're about to face persecution. You think you need extra grace when you face persecution? When it's either renounce Jesus or die? Call Caesar Lord or die? But God will give grace in those moments. Whether there's inner conflict within the church, God will give grace or inner conflict within ourselves if you're struggling with anxiety. My God shall supply all your need. According to what? 
according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Notice it doesn't say from his riches. It says by his riches. That's significant. It's not as if God takes from his riches so that he can supply for your needs, but now he has a little bit less. See, when God gives us this grace, when he supplies by his riches to us, he's not keeping a ledger and saying, well, we got three less of these today. <laughs> you know, boy, that was a really, really difficult week for Jordan, man. You know, he, he had five of these, so we better stock back up. Oh, wait a minute, now I don't have enough for Brian. Thank the Lord that his riches are inexhaustible. And he doesn't give and lose anything. He shares his glory with us. It's who he is. These gifts are also noticed by Christ Jesus. Every promise of God in Christ is yes and amen. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and your Savior, any promise in the Bible that's good is yours. Any promise that's not good, he took upon himself. Isn't that something? Every promise of God in Christ is yes and amen for you as the believer. Every promise. Isn't that awesome? Now, some of those promises we may not experience in this side of eternity. Some of them are awaiting us. But there's a lot of them that he's promised to be there with us today, right? He's promised us just a couple weeks ago his peace to guard our hearts and our minds. He's promised us here to provide for our every need on this side of eternity. I can't wait to see what it is in the future, right? As you stand before your Lord, as, as he's keeping this account to bless us for the things that he really did in and through us. Can you imagine on that day when you stand before your maker, your savior, your Lord, and he says, here's an eternal reward for you of everything that I did in and through you. And you're like, why are you rewarding me, Lord? You should have judged me. I should be in hell for the things that I've done, Lord. Just being here is enough. In your presence, that should be enough. And yet he wants to share all of his glory with us as his children. Amazing. The love of God for us. That every promise you can take through the bank in Jesus Christ, it's yes and amen. Now, if you're not in Christ, there's only one promise in the scripture, and that is fearful expectation of judgment. And I, I don't enjoy speaking about that, honestly, because I don't, it's not the heart of God to, to, to judge us, right? He, he judged our, his son so that he wouldn't have to judge us. But if we refuse to submit to the gospel of Christ, if we refuse the son then it says we're, we're treating his blood as a common thing. It, oh yeah, the blood that Jesus spilled, nothing. Just common blood, every man's blood. I don't need that. I, I, I got my works, you know. I'm making a stairway to heaven for myself. Good luck. But every promise of God, yes and amen, and by Christ Jesus. He supplies every one of your needs. And I, I speak that over you this morning. Why? Because it's the word of God. Whatever you need, he will provide. It may not be how you think you need it or when you think you need it or what you think you even need, right? Do you ever come to find that the Lord knows your needs better than you do? I learn that every single day. Right now we're praying for our house to sell. But you know what? The Lord knows what we need. I'm speaking to myself right now. As I read this, it's like a mirror looking at me. 
He knows when we need it. He knows the timing. He knows why. Hindsight, you know, is always 2020, right? You look back and you can then see the hand of God. You can say, wow, Lord, thank you for not answering my prayer. Right? Think about where your life would be if God answered every prayer of yours. Wow. I'd be dead, probably, in all honesty, especially those prayers before Christ. I prayed for a lot of destructive things. But he will provide for your every need. If you need it, he will provide it in his timing, the way that he sees fit, which is ultimately what's best for you. It might not be comfortable, it might not be convenient, but it's best. Because he loves you. He's your father. But Paul cannot make this statement without bursting forth into praise. Notice verse 20. Now to our God, notice it's not just my God now, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That word amen means so be it. It's as if as he meditates on the fact of God providing for their every need, of God's faithfulness, of him taking and giving out of his glory to his saints, all he can do is just say glory to God, praise the Lord. You ever read the Bible and you get, come across one of these promises? Maybe this is one of those promises that you've held on to in times past. And you're reading God's word and it's that word that you need and all of a sudden just out of nowhere you just praise the Lord, right? That's how Paul, I, I can just imagine Paul writing this letter to them in jail. And he's just being led by the Holy Spirit, penning this word to them. And all of a sudden, this praise just bursts forth from his mouth. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. He is eternally glorified. He dwells in glory and glory awaits us. This is where we're heading, my brothers and sisters. And in the process of time, may God use our lives as a living sacrifice. May we give even when it hurts. May we see the needs that are right before our eyes. May we be a tangible expression of the love of God for people that he puts into our path. And when we do that, when we're faithful to do these things, as a response to the grace and mercy that he's shown us, it becomes a sweet-smelling aroma to our Father, a sweet-smelling sacrifice and we're storing up treasure in heaven that no, no man can take away. That's a wise investment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us good things, Lord. You are our heavenly Father. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. Father, thank you that you've promised to provide for our needs, no matter what we face, Lord. No matter what situations have come, come to us. Maybe we weren't even looking for these things. They just came to us. And yet you've promised to give us grace when grace is needed. Patience when patience is needed. Faith, hope, trust, perseverance, Lord. Some of us this morning, we're, we're ready to give up, Lord. Would you give that grace for us to persevere, to keep going, to keep our eyes on you? Fill us with faith, Lord. Help us to see your hand even when we can't see anything because your word says that you're working, because your word promises us these truths. Help us to hold on to these things. In the midst of uncertainty, we serve a God who is certain. Thank you that you are certain. Thank you that you do not change. And thank you that we can bank on your promises. 
that they are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name.